Colin Monteith is a polar and mountain photographer. He's a writer, a climber, whose name has become synonymous with Antarctica. He spent 32 seasons there. He was the field operations officer for the NZ Antarctic Research Programme at Scott Base from 1973 to 83, during which time he made the first descent into the inner crater of Mount Erebus, and a year after that, he was part of the recovery operation after the 1979 Air New Zealand disaster on Erebus, which killed 257 people. And it's Erebus, the world's southernmost active volcano, that is the subject of his latest book, it's called Erebus, the Ice Dragon. Colin Monteith is with us now. Kia ora, Colin. Yeah, kia ora, Kim. There are I six recall, or seven. I, sorry. What? What? I recall what? the last time we spoke about a book, we were both huddled in parkas in a windblown tent in Christchurch. Oh, alas, in not, Christchurch. Alas, not on Erebus. <laughs> no. Um, I thought you were going to say in Antarctica. I said, I don't remember you in that tent, but <laughs> vision, <laughs> vision may have been impaired. Um, there are six or seven other active ones in Antarctica um, on loads of islands, but this is the most southerly one, right? Yeah, correct. And it's it's very exciting because it has a persistent lava lake. That's what makes it quite unique and worth studying from a scientific point of view. So that science has gone on since the... Uh, early 1900s with the Shackleton and Scott expeditions that did the first and second ascents of the, of the mountain, primarily driven by their scientists. Um, first sighted by Captain James Clark Ross. Yes, indeed. He, it, it was part of the... Uh, and that was back in the 1840s, 1841. He was sent by the Royal Navy. Uh, he'd already been to the North Magnetic Pole. This was called the Magnetic Crusade. They needed more magnetic observations in the Southern Hemisphere in particular to help uh, navigation, etc. So they worked out the theoretical position of the North Magnetic Pole. Um, so he sailed two ships, Erebus and Terra, out from, from England uh, across the Indian Ocean to Hobart. And from there, um, he broke through the pack ice, which nobody had ever done before. And, of course, the sea is now called the Ross Sea. And remember that these two ships had no engines. But he was gobsmacked by finding the Transantarctic Mountains um, which uh, made, meant that he couldn't reach the, uh, the magnetic pole. So he was very, very disappointed. He had the sledging skills um, to go across uh, the sea ice. He wanted to winter his ships, but he couldn't. But they kept sailing south, hoping that they'd find a way around uh, the mountains to get to the magnetic pole. And lo and behold, he discovered uh, uh, Ross Island and, of course, named the two volcanoes uh, after the two ships. Erebus and Terra. The world was fairly gobsmacked to discover that there was this active volcano in the middle of an ice field. Absolutely. Yes, they, they, it, was, it changed uh, lots of science f uh, forevermore. So 60 years later, when Captain Scott and the Discovery Expedition 1901 and then Shackleton 1907, um, their scientists worked on the mountain quite a lot. And, uh, but it was really another gap of uh, uh, 40, 50 years, 60 years before um, the New Zealanders and Americans started 
um, exploratory uh, science in the 1960s, late 1959 through the 60s and 70s. So it's been a very exciting journey from very basic science through to very sophisticated science now, by, uh, led primarily driven by Philip Kyle, a petrologist uh, who studies the origin of rocks. He's had 44 seasons on Erebus, um, initially with Victoria University. That uh, must we, be some kind of record. Absolutely, absolutely. And, I mean, this whole, this whole book is very exciting because it's, it's a, a, an amazing uh, achievement, I think, by the team at Massey University Press. It's their first Antarctic book. And uh, it's the it's the first book to focus an Antarctic book to focus on a single mountain. So yes, a, a, a lot of the research driven by Phil Kyle and uh, English scientist Clive Oppenheimer, who's had 13 seasons on Erebus, they've uh, gradually gone from just using uh, geological hammers through to some very sophisticated um, science and remote technology, including satellite technology and robots and. Yeah, it's just quite amazing. You're quite right. It is a beautiful book, and it's got some beautiful, beautiful pictures in it, not only photographs of Erebus, but also memorial photographs of the people involved in the various expeditions and scientific research, and also paintings. I'm just looking at a beautiful painting by David Rosenthal, Erebus Glacier Ice Tongue Ice. Do you say glacier or glacier, Colin? Glacier. You're the authority. Do you say glacier? Yes, sometimes. Right. Yeah. But I, yes, I, I plan to have art all the way through the book, and I and I I love the painting from James Clark Ross's era, done by the second master of the Terror. And you can still I, I got that from the the Greenwich Maritime Museum, and you can still see the pencil marks uh, across this painting uh, of them discovering Erebus, and it must have been quite exciting because it was really in a very active phase. They didn't land on Ross Island, but they, he must have coloured the painting uh, back in his cabin that night, or perhaps back in Hobart. Um, yeah, so it's it, um, understand that Erebus is is quite unique because of this lava lake. Um, it's quite different. Uh, the volcano is very different to the uh, the volcanoes that we're familiar with. Listeners will be familiar with the Pacific Ring of Fire, the volcanoes that come right round the Americas and and down through Kamchatka and um, Indonesia, Japan down to New Guinea and New Zealand, of course. And they're various con- smaller continental plates that are that are rafting over each other. And uh, at weaknesses, their volcanoes come up. So you go south from New Zealand and cross the Southern Ocean, and you come to Antarctica, of course, the highest continent on the planet, over 4,000 metres high in the East Antarctic Ice Sheet, 2,000 metres high plus in the, in the smaller West Antarctic Ice Sheet. And that's sitting on a continental plate, which is sort of twice as, uh, about four times as bigger than Australia. So it's a big chunk of, of continental plate. If that plate was a tissue paper, and you sprinkled water down the Transantarctic Mountains, the second longest mountain range in the world, 3,500 kilometres, 750 kilometres wide. Uh, if you sprinkled water down there and then pulled opposite ends of this continental plate, it would shear and it would, in a jagged line. So there's a whole range of volcanoes from the Baleni Islands down into the Ross Sea. Some of them are under the ocean, and you come down to volcanoes that, that James Clark Ross discovered as well, Mount Melbourne, and of course to to the centre of this uh, area, and it's called it's called a rift. It's 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 a same geolog- geological setting as the East African Rift, where you've got two massive uh, volcanoes there in, in Eastern Africa, um, which have permanent or persistent lava lakes. They don't, geologists don't use the word permanent because they don't know how long no. these lava lakes are going to last. The Erebus lava lake has, was really discovered in 1972 by Phil Kyle and others from Victoria University, Harry Keyes. 
and it's it's changed its shape and size um, continually over over many years. Uh, but these volcanoes continue on under the Ross Ice Shelf, and they come out in the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. Some of them, uh, the highest, in fact, the highest volcano in Antarctica, Mount Sidley, is in the West Antarctic uh, Ice Sheet. But its its summit cone only barely pokes above the the ice sheet itself. Oh, was that right? Um, yeah. Cause and, it's a, so, how do you measure it then? <laughs> well, they they measure it to the to the bedrock, you know, and some of some of that bedrock is below sea level. Because they reckon it. Mount Sidley's over. 4,200 metres. Yeah, that's right. It's but what do they do? They have to drill down to the bedrock to assess that. <laughs> a lot of this is done by remote sensing now by aircraft <laughs> and echo sounding. But and is that how they... Because Erebus itself, it's slightly higher than Mount Cook, yep. 3,794 metres, right? Right. But that's not... It's not that much above the ice. Is that what you're saying? It's no, only well, that it, much above the bedrock, which is way below. No, that's the height. That's the height above sea level. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, in, on Erebus's case. Yep. Can you tell me about your descent into the inner crater, please? Yes. Well, um, nineteen seventy-eight, and it was the science was driven by a DSIR scientist uh, called um, Werner Gignerbach, who wanted to sample. Um, the gases as close as he possibly could to the lava lake from the fumaroles there. And he, of course he had sampled the gases from the, many of the fumaroles around the outer craters of Erebus, but they're contaminated by air and water vapour. So he needed to get very, very close to this lava lake was his quest. And you could say that's kind of crazy and kind of dangerous, but science has always taken risks um, certainly in Antarctica. In fact, James Clark Ross's voyage, harking back to that, um, their second voyage into the Ross Sea in 1842, after their magnetic observations in the Bay of Islands, they got stuck for, 40, for 56 days on, on the ice. And they, they eventually had a ball and um, had a banner there that was the entrance for their officers to come in. They, so they dressed up as men and, and women and had a, had a formal dance during yes. this. And, but the, the banner says, Pioneers of Science. So science has always had risk. So Werner Gingenbach was well aware of this. They'd made a major attempt in 1974 to get into the inner crater, uh, combined with French uh, volcanologists, uh, specifically Harun Taziev and his offsiders. And they'd tried to use heavy metal winches, which were very difficult to get into position and very difficult to operate in the cold temperatures. So, um, and, and indeed, Erebus Lava Lake uh, potentially blows up between once and three times every day. So Taziev had told you that the thing. chance of being killed by flying lava was fairly low but he did think there was a strong possibility of being knocked unconscious That's right. when it, flung into a wall by the blast. That's right. That was comforting. So, there's certainly risk. So I was the gopher, basically. Um, I attached my... I had a great job. I, I, in the office in Christchurch during the winter, I would coordinate science programs and sometimes two seasons in advance, and then I would go down and help uh, run Scott Base for various periods, and I would attach myself to uh, different science projects um, therefore, being a better administrator, knowing the geology and uh, the geography and the science uh, f for the next program, so I'd go to various science projects. So I had three three expeditions on the summit of Erebus, and it it, uh, it drew me in as it does for everybody else who lives at Scott Base and McMurdo. It's a it's a constant presence, and its mood's always changing, and it's uh, it's a very exciting place. So to work on the summit was a real privilege. But so yes, to, to get back to Werner Gingenbach, he was determined to go, but we tried to we, we decided to use nylon ropes, normal climb ropes. There's about an 80 metre wall that you have to get down, so you have to abseil, you have to lower yourself down 
to get close to these fumaroles. So I was the, the person who tested it. So there was other mountaineers on the surface of the main crater floor that had set up, it's called a Z-pulley. It's just a, a standard uh, a, a crevasse extraction technique used by mountaineers all over the world. So it's just a mechanical advantage using pulleys. And so I abseiled down and, uh, and got very close to the, to the lava lake and... Uh, because um, Erebus hadn't blown up for about 15 hours, so we figured that the risk was somewhat sm- uh, somewhat low. But, but anyway, if it hadn't blown up for 15 hours, would you not <laughs> think, would you not think it's about time? Yeah, well, that's right. Well, I was very happy to get uh, pulled out of there, and, and so the system worked basically. And Werner rigged up with the gas mask and long titanium rods in his rucksack and sampling bottles, and uh, off he went. And um, and sure enough, the the what we call the active vent started glowing red, and within a few seconds, it, it blew up. So uh, you said you used nylon ropes. Would they not melt? Yes, indeed. But the, we, we, they decided in 1974 that the steel cables were just too awkward to use. and it was So, yes, there was definitely a risk. And, and the, the lava that, that blew out at that time, um, some of it landed on Werner's knee. He was able to um, brush it off with his, with his leather gloves before it burnt through to his leg. But it did damage the rope. So we, were, we pulled him out straight away. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, risky business. So... Uh, you say uh, that sure, you had to dissuade him from wearing soft-soled mucklucks. Did you manage to dissuade him? Well, the, the lava is, is sort of 1,000 degrees Celsius, and yeah. yet there's, there's snow at, at my feet. I was controlling one of the ropes belaying Werner. Um, so, and when I went down, there was actually snow down there, all crusted yellow, and, but it was actually much firmer than, than I, we figured it would be. So I, I actually wish I'd um, worn crampons uh, to manoeuvre myself around down at the bottom of the of the inner crater. So, uh, yeah, Werner was in mucklucks. Um, <laughs> he, was, he was a wild character and he was very determined and, uh, and terrific scientist and some of the techniques that he developed for sampling gases are still used today. Um, yeah. So and a year after that, you were part of the recovery operation post the Air New Zealand Erebus disaster. Um, and in the book, you had to deal with it, obviously, and... and you would have thought long and hard about how to do that. You've got an a- accounts of four people involved in the recovery operation, including you. And uh, you said the personal trauma was, of course, tremendous. But interestingly, you say that there was no darkness to soothe the eyes and the mind. And I hadn't thought about that. Well, it's a constant problem. Uh, during summer operations in Antarctica, that it is hard to get rest. It's hard to pace yourself. Hard to know when to sleep. Some people sleep during the, the so-called night and work. And yeah, it's it's a complicated equation. But yes, it can be very draining. You end up working very long hours. So we we had to pace ourselves and uh, on the crash site. And uh, yeah, and I, I, my original project was to do a book on Ross Island um, because the aircraft didn't really hit the volcano. It hit the very base of, of Ross Island. But that project changed, and it seemed logical to uh, to focus just on the volcano. But obviously I couldn't le- – it's splitting hairs to, to say that it didn't hit Erebus. So um, inescapably I had to include a chapter uh, called No Latitude for Error. Because um, we and, call it the Erebus was, disaster. Well, that's right, and, that's, and that will never change. So, yes, of course I had to include a chapter on it, but I was – 44 years down the track, I was I was nervous about. And I kept pushing the chapter to the end. What was I going to? What could one person say? And it seemed logical to in, involve uh, Rex Henry, Hugh Logan, and Harry Keyes. 
um, each of them mountaineers and uh, uh, good friends, of course. And so, as you said, the four of us uh, write very different reflections. And I, but I think the, the the end product is I think the chapter is very powerful. And I've purposely put the photographs in in black and white. Uh, but I've ended the chapter with a, a very colourful and I think well-crafted painting in colour, um, which many people will have never seen. It's done by an Australian artist called Peter Norville. In fact, and for 30 years, he was a commercial airline pilot. So it's a very interesting construction. But I, So I, I hope the chapter means a lot to um, New Zealanders who were, um, have been involved. Uh, Did you know fairly early on in the piece, Colin, that the plane was not on the correct flight path and the crew had wrongly trusted their instruments. Um, did we know on the crash site? No, well, it was... How, it was, how soon did you know that? Because you looked at the photographs that the passengers had taken, you'd put two and two together. That's right. When we came back from the island, we, were, um, we collected all the cameras on, on the crash site and we developed those photographs and we lay them out on the floor in Antarctic Division near the, uh, near the Christchurch Town Hall and we put them into big spirals and whatnot, tried to work out the, the, the descent route across Beaufort Island. And the, the mistake, I guess, is Beaufort Island should have stood out to people that um, they were in the wrong place. That, that, yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's a complicated story, obviously, and I don't, I didn't, I don't go into it too much detail no, in, the, in the chapter, purposely. But um, it, it is, um, it is interesting considering the uh, the preparation that we had gone to with Air New Zealand and meetings in Christchurch beforehand and whatnot. That, um, yeah, I guess it's, uh, it, yeah, and, and I do, I do make a point that there was no whiteout. It was purely bad weather. And um, the radio operators at Scott Basin at Vander Station uh, had told the pilots very clearly that uh, all, air, all air operations had shut down with uh, with uh, bad weather coming down to almost sea level. Um, yeah, but these passenger photographs are very interesting because it wasn't a whiteout, it's just bad weather. Right. And there was clear surface definition. You can see the sea ice all the way into Lewis Bay and the big ice cliff. So it's, uh, yeah, whatever. It's, uh, um, yeah. But I, I mentioned that painting um, because there, there is artwork all the way through the chapter, uh, through the book, mm-hmm. and it's very important. I think to um, when I realised this, I, it became obvious to me that I needed help with by Adele Jackson from who is now at Canterbury Museum. She was just finishing a PhD at, at Canterbury University on art in Antarctica. She she works as a, an archivist on polar matters, and she's worked at Scott Base and worked at uh, Port Lockroy in the Antarctic Peninsula. So she's written a beautiful chapter, Chapter Thirteen, which ties together not only the art of of Erebus but other aspects, uh, including dance and music and, and indeed poetry. And the uh, poet and, and quite a bit of that focuses on the crash chapter as well, um, because major disasters all over the world, like like wars. Or or whatever do spark off creativity, and quite a number of uh, of very interesting poems have been written specifically about the crash. And Adele uh, summarises those in her chapter. So I, I feel there was actually five of us involved in trying to get across um, something of that air crash in 1979. Yeah, just tell me a little, Colin, about the end papers, uh, which okay. I looked at and I thought, oh, what does it looks like? I don't know what it looks like. I had to find <laughs> out what it is. It's a photograph taken by you. They're the most beautiful thing. Yeah, they're frost, frost crystals, frost patterns, and they're on a. I was on a ship underneath Mount Erebus, as it turned out, in very heavy pack ice in, in early 
uh, March, so we're heading into autumn. It's rapidly shutting down for the winter. And the ship, I was up on the ship's bridge, and we were manoeuvring, trying to get out of, of uh, where we were not stuck, but we were trying to go north again to New Zealand. And these, the frost started forming on the bridge on the bridge windows, and the, the Russian crew that I was with, they had to keep clearing the windows to, so they could uh, see where they were driving the ship. And But the... In, because it was autumn, there's a low. The sun is getting lower and lower, so the, the 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 sun is glinting through these frost crystals. And I photographed for several hours as we changed position, and, and the frost patterns kept changing as well. So the the back end papers papers are quite different from um, the front end papers. Yes, so they are. in a way, it's fire and ice is the sort of uh, analogy, I suppose, of those photographs to, to try and get across that impression that we're we're dealing with uh, a very very exciting volcano in a very exciting location. Would you have found any use for those photographs had, the, had you not had a book such as this? Uh, well, I ran a stock library for many years and those sort of photographs were a key part of that for, for a long time. Yeah, we sold photographs of polar and mountain regions to publishers all over the world for 30 years or so. And uh, these days I've, uh, I, I, I still sell photographs, but I, I largely sell um, antiquarian books. That's good fun. Bucking Mad Books. That's right. Um, Really good to talk to you, Colin. Thank you, and thank you for the book. Okay, pleasure. Colin Monteith, whose book is called Erebus, the Dragon, the Ice Dragon, a portrait of an Antarctic volcano.